Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Hey, the action here. It's not in the stock market today. It's in Bitcoin. Up 7.8%, $4,400, almost $4,500 higher. We're now at 61000 190. What is going on there? I have no idea, but I know somebody who does. That's Mike McGlone. He's a senior commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on Zoom from our Miami uh, BI outpost down there in South Beach. Mike, you've been on this thing since day one, consistent from day one, you know, fixed supply, presumably ever increasing use cases, which will drive demand. And that's all you need. So is that still the case here? Yeah, it's certainly the case. So I appreciate you saying consistent because I haven't been that consistent. I was quite concerned that it was getting a little too speculatively excessive around the launch of the ETFs in the beginning of the year. But it's still the case. In April, we'll have the halving is when you cut the supply. Right now, you can only mine 900 Bitcoins a day. It'll drop to 450. That's every four years. So it'll cut the supply. And we have, obviously, from ETF flows, just in the last week, this week alone, 1 billion have been in flows since ETFs have been launched. A total of about 7 billion. Yeah, Eric Beltrunas has been all over that. And I'm glad you mentioned it. there's a key, but you, the thing that really struck me was that the ETF conference, the big one they yep. have in, in Miami every year. So that Eric wasn't the was one moderate. in Cleveland in February. This is one in Miami in February? <laughs> yeah, okay. That's right. No hurry to go to sure. Cleveland okay. in February. But so Eric was moderating a panel in the room was packed. So I went to another um, presentation room at the same time where it was actually bigger and no one was no one really cared what they were presenting. on. so everybody, all these professional <laughs> money managers were really looking at watching Bitcoin, wanted to learn about Bitcoin ETFs. Wait, can you just break down this whole having thing? I don't understand how that's OK to do that. <laughs> Well, hello, um, Alex. It's it's in the code. I have a son who's a programmer. I asked him about it. He says, no, it's the code, Dad. It's just by, by, um, by code, every four years, the supply gets cut in half. So right now, all the miners in the world will only bit, um, create 900 coins a day. And on, as of the halving, it'll cut to 450. So it doesn't have that high price cure that you really see affect most commodities and why most commodities are in bear markets, with the exception of gold. But it also, on the supply side, 
it's just the way it's set up. And as our colleague Zeke Foss wrote out, wrote number go up. Well, that's Bitcoin is designed to go up. But now it's becoming an alternative currency on a global basis. And the U.S. is jumping in that fray. And also a key thing you have to look at from a macroeconomic standpoint is China's kind of pushing back. Remember, China's going for gold, the largest gold buyer in the world, and they were associated with this war. And the U.S. is just to prove ETFs and Bitcoin. So you see where the world's going towards intangible assets, and Bitcoin's the most significant in cryptos. So how do we I – mean, let me go back to something really fundamental. How do we value this thing? How do we decide whether it's expensive <laughs> or not? Is there any fundamental analysis here, or is it just the – it's a commodity yeah. in supply and demand. It'll go up, well, and I, then you should buy it at some point. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I do I do appreciate that, Paul. Typically coming from an equity kind of yep. person, it's a question I often get in commodities. The one way you can value it is by watching the hash rate. That's just the amount of of um, transactions and and, and, and I, I guess you could say computer power in the space, kind of looking at um, the voltage and things and it's it's exponential still rising rapidly but one thing i also like to tilt over to when people push back on this particular crypto i mean remember there's 30,000 wannabes is i like to say when you go on any of the major crypto uh, sites and you click on volume the number one traded crypto is the dollar via tokens and the one and that is tether basically trades double the volume of bitcoin so i'd say bitcoin's the leading one it's like gold in the space but when people push back the technology i'm saying it's really the whole world's gone for this space and the base layer they've gone for is the dollar not any other currency that's actually quite interesting um what about ether though for example like you mentioned tether but Ether, I've read like Ether ETFs may be coming too. And I'm wondering what the effect of that would be on the thesis that you have. Well, to answer your question, Alex, to me, it's a matter of time to get ETFs to track a broad index in the space. So Bloomberg mm -hmm. Intelligence first proposed the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index in 2017. We launched that in 2018. So that's what, almost six years now? It's just a matter of time. But Ethereum, uh, Ether ETFs will come. It's a question of when. The key thing that Ethereum has, it do you do have a yield in Ethereum. Um, and that's where most equity people come in and say, oh, well, I can do that. And then also it's part of it's the technology. Ethereum is really kind of making possible what's happening in the space is NFTs might be speculative, but also token, tokens, tokenization of most assets. As I mentioned, the dollar is the most widely traded crypto. All right. So let's let's back away. We got a lot. Crypto's going higher. I get it. In the commodity space that you look at, Mike, you look at everything and we'll get to pork bellies later. That's that's my area of expertise. What do you like right now? What do you talking to clients about these days gold um i i have mm. to say that that's what that's what really brought me into cryptos in the first place and gold is the most enduring outperforming commodity over time particularly in times when you have um maybe i'd say in the back end of fed rate hikes which we're heading towards easing and with china potentially um declining so right now gold is up about 10% on a one-year basis in the broad commodity index are down about 10%. I think that's going to accelerate. The key thing I think has been saying about gold forever now is you can't really hold gold anymore without some Bitcoin in its space unless you're willing to take a, a risk that the world is not going to continue advancing towards a digitalization. So I see gold going higher. And here's a key take is I think crude oil at $78 a barrel, WTI is more likely to head towards 50. And there's a good indication for that. And that's natural gas, US natural gas, the number one measure for heat, electricity, and fertilizer has dropped at least a month a couple weeks ago dropped to the lowest price when it was first traded in futures in 1990 wow yeah it's pretty bad but but i mean there, there's reasons 
for that in terms of demand here in the U.S., which is different than, say, the broader look for oil. So why do you think we're going to go to 50? I mean, there's no way that OPEC Plus would be down with that. <laughs> well, that's the problem. It's, they don't control oil anymore. We'll just look at the facts. The excess of U.S. and Canadian fuel, liquid fuel and crude oil supply over demand now is about 6 million barrels a day. And guess what OPEC's spare capacity is? About 6 million barrels a day. So they're fighting a losing battle. But the key fact is if crude oil catches up to industrial metals, if it catches up to grains and corn and virtually all the other commodities, <clears throat> it will go to $50 a barrel. So I look at the premium, the geopolitical premium right now in crude oil is about 20 bucks. 20 bucks, really? Yeah. That's and really what, interesting <clears throat> because the, the, the thesis out there, like the common thought on the street is that there is no geopolitical risk premium. Or if it's there, it's like a couple bucks because you've had the backstop of U.S. supply that's kind of helped offset that. And because Russia is still doing their thing despite sanctions. Yes, I do appreciate that. And then oftentimes they ignore the other commodities. So number one, natural gas. Number two, corn. Number three, copper. You look at all of them. They're all in pretty severe bear markets. And the laggard in this commodity bear market is crude oil at the moment. So I look mm. at it. To me, I just published, I think it's on a cliff's edge. And obviously, I've been a bit early. If I was a trader, I would have been stopped out. But now the trend is clearly <laughs> lower. And you have, to, you have to ask yourself what keeps it elevated. And I say you have to have sustained geopolitical risk. But every day we turn around that these prices are above the US average cost of production, which is around $55 a barrel. You just see more supply coming on. And demand is not really picking up. And here's a key factor that I can mention is diesel demand in this country has stagnated to about the same level as it was in 2017. That's virtually never happened without a recession. Unleaded gas demand is declining. Paperboard um, demand is declining. So certainly from the largest economy standpoint, we have a problem. And then you look over at China, the number one importer, they are completely dependent on fiscal monetary stimulus for economic buoyancy at the moment. So the, the, the outlook for me for crude oils, I'll put Phil Kill on it this year. Initially, I said 40 about two years ago, and I'm going to at least give it this year if it's going to make it there. Phil and Kill. Yeah. About, so when you get stopped out of a trade, do you just put it right right back on, Mike? Back in the day. Well, that, that, I, I used to have hair, as you can see on, 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 on the YouTube. But no, that's it's that's it's it's all depends. A lot of times it was with my own money, with clients, or with institutional money. But that was the key thing that really struck me. Is I was way early, but now that's the advantage I have as being an ex-trader. I can see where I would have been stopped out, mm -hmm. and as an analyst, I can point out the macro. But I think the key thing that people really missed last two years was the significant macroeconomic stimulus of this unlimited friendship mm -hmm. between President Xi and President Putin. It's tilted the whole world backwards versus against China. And China was the number one source of demand pull for commodities. And then you also had this incentive of high prices because of a war, which really kicked in that elasticity of supply and demand, which has mm -hmm. been the U.S. has been leading that way in almost all commodities. I mean, yeah, so uh, I, I think it just accelerated those forces. Hey, Mike, we got to leave it there. And we're going to do pork bellies next time. Don't worry about it. I, I'm all up for pork bellies, pork man. Bellies. We, we can definitely hit that for sure. Um, cattle, chicken. Anyway, sure. uh, Mike McGlone, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior at Commodity Strategist. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The S&P is just down one-tenth of 1%. I mean, we can say that investors are cautious. We can say that stocks are lower, but volume is light. It's hard to get excited about any kind of quote unquote sell off. And my real question is like, what's it going to take for the markets to actually consistently 
go down. Ann Barry is founder and managing partner over at Threadneedle. Uh, she joins us right now. What's it going to take, Ann, for markets to really go down here? Alex, I think it's going to take one of two things. At the macro level, it's either going to take really strong inflation and therefore even more resetting by the market of what they think the Fed is going to do in terms of continuing to push up rate cuts, or if that's at the macro level, or when it comes to looking at fundamentals, we need to see a slew of earnings. So we're sort of through the season now, but looking ahead for another three months that basically continues to sort of reset expectations to be a bit more realistic around some of these big productivity boosts and AI boosts that people have been seeing. We've seen that break a little bit already in places like um, Palo Alto Networks, for example. But I, I think we need some more expectation resetting, and it just hasn't happened this earnings season. I think some people thought it might. So that, that kind of brings me to valuation here. Um, and I, I, should we have some valuation concerns in this market? Because we've seen a big move off of the October lows um, yeah. Yet, I'm not sure we saw a commensurate rise in uh, earnings per share of this market. How do you think about valuation? I think that's, I, I've long been saying, and Alex and I've had this conversation, that this market feels extremely overvalued on a couple of different dimensions. If you take a look at the equity risk premium, it's absurdly low relative to some of the macro risk factors out there. And if you look back historically, so that's number one. Number two, you, we're looking at uh, uh, P ratios, P to growth ratios that are completely unprecedented across entire indices and then within sectors, particularly within tech. So I've long been of the view that we've, we're in overvalued territory. Um, I think just the question is, what is that catalyst going to be to get people to focus on that again, right. rather than a sort of vague euphoria? HSBC had the most reluctant uh, call change I'm getting I've ever seen. Um, they've had a tactical underweight stance for a while, oh. um, and they finally said that sentiment and positioning have been stretched and remain elevated, but it just isn't enough to prompt a significant correction in risk assets. At the same time, and we have I don't I mean Goldman. I'm trying to think Barclays at UBS, all kind of chasing the rally and upgrading their price forecasts uh, for the yeah. S&P for this year. I mean, what does that tell you? I mean, it's a little bit of function, Alex, of upgrading of certain of the really big stocks that take up such a big chunk of the S&P and of the NASDAQ. So when you're getting big companies like NVIDIA getting re-rated upwards, when you're getting a lot of the big tech companies re-rated upwards, that's sort of lifting the entire index. And that's where I get really nervous back to this point. I think tech has been such a massive driver of uplift. I do think the sector is overvalued and that's spilling over into much broader market um, sort of bubble territory. And, and so I, I'm nervous about it. So what does that mean for kind of when you talk to your clients here? Is it kind of get out of tech, those names, or lighten up on some of those tech names, try to find some value in other parts of the market? Or like hold your nose and or grin hold and bear your it? Nose. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a little bit of a hybrid. So it's really trying to look for secular tailwinds that I think are going to be there in the long term. And I'll give you an example, cyber security, since I threw out their Palo Alto networks. I have invested, for example, this is on the private side with clients in a private company that is in, in the business of deep fake detection. So if you think about whether it's Taylor Swift images or whether it's President Biden's voice being deep faked, this is an area in cybersecurity that's really picking up in terms of public attention. That's the kind of space that is going to be, I think, rife for consolidation. And players like the Palo Alto Networks and others, I think, are going to be the acquirers of these companies. So this is one where I say, look, you've got to look for industries of secular tailwind, cyber being one of them. Look for breakpoints. In this case, I did buy that stock when I saw it go down uh, with a $90 billion sell-off just because the CEO had dared to say we need a real strategy around pricing. And it's going to be a little bit um, less 
uh, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit less cash flow positive than some of you thought. And so those are the break points. I, I like CEOs that are coming out in these kind of sectors saying, look, here's reality. It's really tough to execute, but here's a plan. This is how we're going to do it. And when we see sell-offs in those names, that's when we're looking to go back in. Um, what about, what do you do with the big guys like, say, Google that's gotten hit hard uh, and also yeah. Apple, which we're making a, bit, a lot of hay about technical levels. The chart doesn't look that great. When you're looking yeah. at maybe a breakdown of some of the big tech names, do you go in and buy? I do, Alex, and it really depends on why that breakdown has happened. I've got, I think, a bit more forgiveness when it comes to co big companies that at the end of the day are cash flow machines, have real market share in big growing markets. When those companies come out and say, look, we've made a mistake or we're going to shutter a product line as Apple has done when it comes to EV, for example, or when we see Gemini get rolled out too quickly and we see therefore a misstep at Google, and therefore Alphabet now saying, look, we're really going to have to invest behind slowing this down and fixing it. I've got patience for that, Alex, because I think those are still fundamentally good businesses where, again, we're seeing these companies experiment. Sometimes they'll get it wrong. I'd like to make sure they're not shredding too much capital in the process and are being disciplined in their allocation. But at the end of the day, you can't take away the fact these companies aren't going anywhere. They will redirect resources to more profitable outlet, outlets. And I've got patience for that. I don't. I see those as buying opportunities of the, the rest of the markets running in those moments. Talking about making a pivot or having some patience for a business line, how about Apple? Kind of saying, backing away from the electric vehicle business, the autonomous vehicle business, that's a pretty big move. What would you, would you make of that? It is a big move, but here's what, here's what I say about Apple. I'm going to compare it specifically and deliberately to another tech name, and that's Amazon. If you take a look at Amazon, the amount of forgiveness that there has been over the, over yep. the decade for that company to experiment, throw a bunch of money into big new ideas, whether it's in grocery or whether it's in healthcare, and if it fails, Amazon shuts down relatively quickly those experiments. The market thinks that's great and they say this is cool to its culture and this is why it's such an agile nimble company and will continue to win in the long run for some reason that attitude has faded when it comes to the apples of the world i have uh, forgiveness for that because apple tried it still got a huge cash flow machine in its core iphone iproducts and if ev is not going to generate return i'd much rather they shut up sh uh, shut up shop on that front and go re re uh, focus and reinvest behind more profitable lines so i i think it's a good thing when companies come out and say it didn't work let's move on all right and thanks a lot really appreciate it always fun to get your perspective ann barry founder and managing partner at threadneedle i gotta say when I interview CEOs, I feel the same way. Like yes. when you deliver information to the CEO and they're like, no, no, it's great. Like this is a great <laughs> buying opportunity for our stock. Everything's amazing. You're like, okay. Yeah. We know. We know what you're doing, guys. We can yeah. see through that. And I saw, yeah, Apple just kind of coming right out. Well, I guess they didn't say. It's Mark Gurman reporting. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they, they haven't had a statement yet. I was correct on that earlier today. But basically, Mark Gurman, Bloomberg News reporting that, you know, we're going to back away from electric vehicle business. A lot of employees assigned to it. Some of them will be reallocated uh, to their AI efforts. Um, some probably losing the jobs. But again, it's a big, big pivot there. I mean, it, it also makes sense. Like, if you want to be a services business at the end of the day, how does a car kind of fit into that? Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. David Welch is our Detroit Bureau Chief, uh, and he joins us now on Zoom from Detroit. Um, Hey, David, when we talked about um, Apple pushing back from the EV market, is there a China connection there that China's flooding the market with their own cheap EVs? Every other car maker is having a hard time with it. Is there something to that? Um, very, uh, very little, honestly. I, I mean, I think He's like, no, overall, Paul, sorry, <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> no, it, like, in a way, in the sense that the EV market's tough, it's very competitive in China. Even Tesla's losing share there, and, and it's even tougher here. And then there's a lot of competition in Europe. But Look, really, you know, take take the airplane up about twenty thousand feet on Apple's decision. Their margins are what thirty or forty percent, and gross margins for Tesla and General Motors about the same these days at about sixteen percent. And you have to spend billions of dollars to make this vehicle. Why would they do that? Right. So, um, I, I I think that's really what this is about. And and it's you know they're also looking at they were looking at a. a, a an electric vehicle that was going to be about a hundred thousand dollars. So this was going to be a luxury Apple EV, and we're you know we see Rivian, we see Lucid. Yep. You know, that, that's rarefied air. That, that's a tough sell. There's just there just aren't that many people who can afford a hundred thousand dollar vehicle. And then you know, one other thing I, I like to bring up with Apple is they talked about Apple TV for a long time, and everyone thought we were going to have this. Apple TV hanging on the wall, but right. making televisions is a lousy, high capital, <laughs> low margin business, kind of like automobiles. And then they gave us a box with content. So, <laughs> you know, Apple supplies CarPlay to automakers. You know, they, they may still have an autoplay with some kind of content sort of thing in their vehicles, but I think they looked at the capital side of this and, and said, you know, that's not what they do. They create cool stuff and contract someone else to make it. Uh, the business yep. just never made a lot of sense for them. Hey, David, what's the feeling in Detroit these days as to kind of the, how this EV thing is going to evolve going forward? I mean, it seems to have hit kind of a, a lull here in terms of the enthusiasm. And I guess a lot of folks are trying to get a sense of, is it because the cost is just too high? Is it because people just don't like EVs? Is it because there's not enough choice? There's not enough charging stations? What's the feeling in Detroit is how this thing will evolve? It's all of that, but I would I would say it's especially choice and, uh, and and price. I mean, look, there, there's one EV on the U.S. market that sells for less than $40,000 now. It's a Nissan Leaf. It's a compact hatchback, which Americans hate, that gets about 200 miles of range, which nobody thinks is enough. 
Um, and so everything else is much more expensive than that. And for most Americans, you know, that, that, that doesn't cut it, particularly when the charging network is bad. So all, all these things are sort of related. But, um, you know, I, I think the car makers are now really cautiously watching this. And, and the vehicle to watch in the next year is General Motors is going to sell an electric Chevy Equinox. So the Equinox is a small crossover SUV. It's, it's kind of the new family car because no one buys sedans anymore. And they're going to sell that EV for $35,000, and it'll go 320 miles on a charge, which is pretty good. And that will kind of tell us if the mass market is ready to go electric. Because right now, a lot of the people who buy EVs, they're not just early adopters and rich people. They're early adopters and rich people with three or four other cars in the garage. So if they need to drive on a long road trip, they pull the Land Rover out, gas it up, and go. <laughs> um, and, and so can the industry sell EVs to people who have one car in their garage? And, yeah. and, and we'll see. So that's going to tell us a lot about what's going to happen with this market and, and how flat the middle of this S-curve is in order to get to the next wave. Those are the people that can qualify for the 1%. 1%, yeah. In, in, in that survey, sure. right. So some of us may fall short. Um, David, I'm also wondering just the mood. I mean, to Paul's point, the mood in Detroit, like how do the workers feel about all of this, right? I mean, we know the shift to EVs. Eventually, when you're just making EVs, you need less workers, etc. cetera. Um, and I'm just wondering kind of, yeah, like how do they feel right now? So look, the, the, I'm not totally convinced, by the way, that it's going to need fewer workers. I think okay. over a long period of time, maybe. But that, that's a different issue. The, the union worker does think that. And, and they also think that the engine and transmission jobs will be gone and batteries will come in from someplace else and, and they won't be the ones making them. So there is a lot of fear. And I think they're breathing some kind of a sigh of relief that maybe a lot of these workers are a bit older. They'll be retired before this is a real issue. <laughs> and so I, I think if you're, if you're the union, you're looking at this transition as being longer and slower than everybody thought probably two years ago. And so it'll be more manageable. You know, the, the, and, you know, the attrition can be just done by retirements and, and people won't lose their jobs and be left with nothing. Uh, it, it, it'll just- But it, 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 is the commitment from the car companies still there, David? Because I, I could make an argument. I think half of this country will never go electric for reasons other than economics, other than powertrain. Was it like look or what? what it, Politics. I'm not huh. going green. You know, that, 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 that's interesting. I, I've sort of thought for a long time that Elon Musk has gone conservative for two reasons. One, he's been fighting with the government, so he hates regulators. Democrats get pinned with regulation, so he, he, he went conservative. I think the other is, that guy's a brilliant marketer. It's the most underrated thing about Elon Musk. And he knows that EVs have been politicized. He knows conservatives don't like them. And so I think he went conservative because maybe they'll buy EVs from their guy, right? He's the guy on Twitter letting them say whatever they want. And, um, and, and, and I've always sort of thought with no evidence that maybe that's what he's doing. But look, I, I, I eventually everyone's going to go EV because that'll just be the powertrain available. The question is, how long does it take to get there? And um, I, I do think it's going to take a very long time. Price is one thing and mm -hmm. apartment dwellers and all of that. I mean, there's just practical reasons why not. Um, but look, I, you know, in the 80s, cell phones were the size of a suitcase. They were very expensive. The service was lousy, and a lot of people said, I'll never get a cell phone. And now everyone's 87% of the market has a smartphone glued to their head uh, or in their hand. So 
you know, never is a very long time. I, I, I think it will happen, but it's not 2035 or 2030 like Mercedes and General Motors throw this. It's like 2045. Okay. Because I'm, you know, I'm, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made in the boardroom. Like, what if this isn't the mass market we thought it was? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I, I, everything else has been politicized. Why not that? But then at some point, you're just going to have regulations that's going to demand it. So you don't have a choice, maybe, which is kind of where we were. Right. And now some of that's being rolled back a little bit. So I think it's, it's the whole idea that you're in an industry that is in a structural shift, but there's all these short-term headwinds. Like, how do you Probably, manage yep. a business like that? That must be very difficult. Yep, that's why. Yeah, but then I, again, so. I don't buy a car from Mary Barra, right? No. I mean, I, I guess only Tesla, you'd buy it for Elon, yeah. maybe? Yeah, I don't know. All right, David, thanks so much for joining us. David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. He's in Detroit. I mean, he's got his you know, feet to the ground, ear to the ground, all that kind of stuff for what's happening in the auto business. But it's tough. I mean, it's tough to... I, to make the case to invest in GM or Ford stock is tough. I, I these industries that are in fundamental transition, and yep. I, I equate the auto industry to the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Fundamental change. And the, and to, the energy industry, but yep, yeah. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. right. Exact, fundamental change to their core business model. And you want me to invest in the equity of this thing? I mean, I think the difference is Ooh. that there's a manufacturing element, whether you're in media or whether you're in a car company versus energy, where it's the underlying hydrocarbon is different. Yep. So they can actually make money while right. <laughs> this is all happening, which is a novel idea. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We also got that data that was pretty solid, right? You get a second quarter, uh, the second read on the fourth quarter GDP coming in a little lighter than estimated, but really that was an inventory issue. The personal consumption part added about two points uh, to that at 3%. Again, Super solid. It's it's a big head scratcher. It is. Joining I mean, us now, Henrietta Trey is managing partner and director of economic policy at Veda Partners. Henrietta, there's a lot to get through. There's this. There's politics. But if I'm um, Biden's campaign, do I like these numbers? I mean, there's a double-edged sword here. On one hand, you want the Fed to cut interest rates, um, not that they're encouraging them to or in any way manipulating it, but the you know perceived benefit of the fed cutting interest rates is something that any administration running for re-election would like to see going into an election year but simultaneously strong gdp growth which is what we're forecasting and expecting and is consensus at this point um, and even being revised upwards by nave and groups like it is also a strong indicator so i have to say i don't know that there's losing data for biden in the upcoming um, economic information that we're about to be getting out What you really want to see, and I think is um, a really interesting dynamic, is actual inflation come down, particularly on household goods and groceries. There is some uh, a study that I conducted a few weeks back about the the gap between women's perception of the U.S. economy and men's perception. Hmm. And in a number of cases, it's you know 60, 70, 80, even 93 percent. Um, negative views amongst on the economy from Republican women. And it's an outsized portion of women versus men who believe the economy is struggling right now. And that's mostly because of inflation. So I think the most important data for the Biden campaign writ large is really just inflation on household goods and groceries. So on that um, end, I guess, uh, Henrietta, tomorrow's going to be an important day here with the PCE deflator data. What are you expecting to see here? I mean, we've seen um, economic expectations and forecasts for consumer sentiment come down. 
Um, you have to think that there's some inflation related components to that, but it could also just be that the four month rise that we've seen is, you know, just sort of plateauing uh, or something along those lines. So um, I, I don't think inflation is going to be cured by any stretch. PCE is still going to be a problem. I think it's just really slow going um, and a struggle for the Fed, which is why the market is repricing so aggressively on whether there will be interest rate cuts. One of the conversations that I used to have a lot was how many cuts are we going to get You know, between March and June? And now it's more a question of are they actually going to cut in March or will it come in June? Um, and I, I think that signals that there's still a long way to go on inflation. Right, like no longer how many, but sort of when it actually starts. It does feel like maybe some of the repricing has finally worked its way through. Um, Henrietta, tie this into the Michigan primaries yesterday. Um, what did we learn? And, and I say that because it, it did feel like an anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian group there really sort of put the screws to the Biden campaign, right? And I wonder how much that's going to start affecting the campaign versus, say, how much I'm paying for eggs at the grocery store. Well, I obviously Michigan is a critical state. There's 200 to 300,000 Muslim or Arab voters in that state. Biden was able to win the state by 150,000 um, last time around. So he does have a cushion. But, you know, if female voters, if youth voters, if black voters are migrating to Trump, which is what the polling is suggesting, but not necessarily representative of primary turnout data, then you have a problem when every vote counts. You know, in 2016, the threshold was just a couple, uh, 10 or so thousand voters. So you really uh, want to work for everyone. But I think there's a, a misunderstanding of what happened last night because a lot of the uh, takeaways were sort of gelled in the public consciousness a little early in the night. It takes 15% for the undeclared vote to send a delegate to the DNC this summer. And they're only at 13% as of this morning. So this is really the last hurrah in terms of big national attention that Michigan and these voters specifically are going to have in a way that I think will carry any of the weight that we've seen for the Biden team to be worried about for the last, you know, three or four weeks. Not that they're not worried about the Israel-Gaza situation in general. They asked for a massive funding request, including humanitarian aid, all the way back in October, and Congress has yet to authorize that, um, which makes it difficult for Biden to get any messages across. But in general, I think the undeclared vote was not the political earthquake that uh, a lot of folks in that community wanted it to be. Um, and I think that there should be a lot of breathing room for the Biden administration, understanding that they will not have to worry about a delegate from this contingency at the DNC this summer. All right. So staying on the political front here, uh, our good friends in Congress, I guess, are getting back to work today or tomorrow. Who knows? But Let's they... put that in quotes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, what are they going to do here about keeping this government open? Should the markets be concerned that we could have an issue here either this Friday or next Friday? Next Friday would be a big issue, and it comes at a very precarious time for the Biden administration specifically. Uh, but here's the state of play as I understand it. We're going to get another short-term CR. It's just a matter of how long. Um, this Friday's deadline only covers about 25% of U.S. federal spending. 
It is uh, $321 billion, if I'm not mistaken. Next Friday is the big kahuna at $1.2 trillion. So I do think that there's going to be a deal to avert a shutdown this week. That's contrary to my earlier view. Um, what happened is the House changed its schedule. They decided to actually come back into town, as you point out. Instead of being gone all week, they are coming back today so that they will be in a position to at least take some votes. But you can tell from Speaker Johnson's reticence to even release text that this is going to get slammed and daylight is going to kill it if he releases it too early. So we need to see text you know, no earlier than tonight, and a vote would come on Friday. But the... Um, potential for a short team CR is effectively guaranteed. The real linchpin here is that for the first time in two cycles, the Senate Republican conference is really hoping not to lose their races um, through unforced errors or through endorsing MAGA candidates. This is their last best chance in a while. And they've got eight Democratic seats in purple states that are highly at risk. On that list is Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, Montana, certainly. So the Senate Republicans are effectively trying to pull rank on House Republicans here and say, yo, let me get a majority in Congress uh, and in the U.S. Senate. Don't shut it down. Don't ruin our chances by making us all look dysfunctional. Let's keep the government open, eye on the prize, focus on the White House, focus on immigration um, and move on from these, you know, sort of futile efforts to cut federal spending from very popular programs like defense. Um, so I think that is very helpful. I would like to see Minority Leader McConnell have a little bit more sway um, over House Republicans and particularly Speaker Johnson. I think we will get there and we'll avoid a shutdown um, on Friday. And then uh, optimistically, we'll avoid a bigger one next Friday. The one caveat or the, the several caveats are one, it's Super Tuesday next Tuesday. The president will deliver the State of the Union address on Thursday, and then that big shutdown would come on Friday. So there's a lot of moving wow. parts here to be watching. Oh, I love it. It's like, I don't want to be the most dysfunctional person in my party. Right. Like, I think <laughs> that's the bar um, for some. Hey, Henrietta, thanks a lot. Henrietta Trace, Managing Partner and Director of Economic Policy at Veda Partners. But I also wonder, we didn't get a chance to ask about Nikki Haley, but... Mm -hmm. um, we know the nomination is not going to happen, but she keeps making the case like 30 to 40 percent of the voters in this state don't want Trump. And I wonder how that eventually evolves uh, over the next few months. Yeah. And a lot of folks we talked to on the political front say that she may stay in this race longer, if for no other reason than to get to the convention and just kind of be there and just sit there and yep. see what happens. See what yeah, happens. I've, I've heard that, too. I wonder what that. Uh, winds up looking like um, and if the polling winds up showing up. Other the stuff. conventions this year are actually going to be very interesting, I, I think. Agree. I mean, I think both of them are going to be very interesting and uh, maybe not for the incumbents, but there's going to be a lot of rhetoric out there. So we'll, we'll pay attention to them this summer. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's drill deeper now uh, into the bond market here. We had a ton of supply coming on this week. In the corporate bond market, we had record February issuance uh, for the month. Um, We had seven, two, fives for the Treasury market, all doing really well. I want to bring in Jerry Kudzel. He's a group managing director and general's generalist portfolio manager at TCW. Let's kind of get into fixed income here. What is the pain trade headed into tomorrow's PCE in the bond market? Well, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think the reality is the 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 market has set itself up co- for complacency kind of across the board. Um, what we would say is the pain trade is probably for a little bit of a um, of a of a higher print uh, on inflation. Although what you know the the re- the reality is that um, there's not a lot of room for error price in the markets at all either way. So it feels like is it safe to say though, Jerry, that from your perspective that we've seen peak inflation? Can we at least say that? I think we would say uh, we've definitely seen inflation. Um, wh- whether whether or not inflation um, ticks back up a little bit, or um, or we see we we both a little bit stronger. I, I think ultimately, when you look at the numbers of the three month or six month annualized, um, the Fed's already hit their target. You know, we're already at uh, we're already at two percent uh, in inflation numbers, and I think the data that we're seeing the micro level. Is- Say the time internally here is that macro views informed by the micro, you know, plural of anecdote is data a little bit. We're all re- we're we're seeing a lot of things under the surface that lead us to believe that the economy uh, is not as healthy and that inflation uh, is is not is not going to remain as as strong. And so yes, we we've already seen peak inflation in our view. Does that mean that you like steepeners, even though if you were in steepeners the last six months, you got you got hurt. Indeed. Um, I, I think the calling the timing of a Fed cut, and I think we all want to, everyone wants to know everyone's opinion about when is the Fed going to get moving on interest rate cuts? Are they going to cut? How are they going to roll it back? I, I think our view is inflation is peaked, uh, real comfortable uh, adding duration, uh, and we think the curve is going to and will normalize. Uh, and so we, we, do, we do like steepeners. I think the reality is this has been, you know, obviously the market's pushed, pushed this 
doubt it, but our view is that's a little bit reflexive. There's a, there's a lot of complacency in the market. You can see that in VIX. You can see that in S&P. You can see that in individual equities. You can see that in the corporate bond indices uh, in the face of record issuance. Alex, as you mentioned, um, we're staring at just about all-time tights or you know, definitely post-GFC tights. Um, and, and, the, and the reality is there's not, uh, in, in our opinion, not a, lot of, not a lot of room for error. But yeah, I think the, sh the short answer to the question is we, we like steepeners and we like, and we like duration. How about corporate credit? How do you feel about uh, going out on the risk premium a little bit? Well, I think let, let's, let's look at it this way. We'd say you're supposed to be high grading your credit portfolios right now. When you think about the investment grade credit is at of 87 over treasuries. The high yield index trades at 307, but when you start stripping out distressed, the high yield index, if you take out the 4% of the high yield index that's distressed, the high yield index trades at a spread of 240. If you pull that back historically, that's a really difficult time to invest in high yield, and it's a really difficult time to go out the risk spectrum. We've seen spread compression, whether that's between credit quality, between high yield and investment grade. And so we would not recommend going out the, spectrum, the, the risk spectrum. We're supposed to be high grading portfolios, being moving up in quality. Um, and and we, we, don't, we would not recommend uh, moving out the risk spectrum right now. We've, we've been high grading our portfolios across the board. Where do you think you could be wrong? <clears throat> Is it going to be the when the Fed cuts? Is it, yep. is it going to be a consistently stronger uh, economy? And I was talking to someone earlier today that talked very much about a two-speed economy. Um, on the one hand, yeah. you have big banks. Um, you have a lot of liquidity. And that's pointing us in a positive direction, consumer spending relatively OK. And then the flip side, you have mid-sized banks, small caps, not doing really well. And it's hard to kind of look at those two and see who's going to win. Yeah. No, it's, it, we ask this to ourselves all the time. Where could we? Where could we be wrong? I'd say the consumer has been significantly more resilient uh, than than certainly we anticipated. I think certainly that I think that probably the majority of of the markets anticipated. Could you get a productivity uh, enhanced you know ex expansion and boom and the you know a AI you know a AI productivity boom? I, I think we we ask ourselves this all the time. It's really can the can the economy grow? Can the consumer re remain resilient? And can you continue to see uh, upward momentum in uh, or sustained growth in wages? I think we've we've considered all these things. We would say we think we're closer to consumer exhaustion than uh, than not. Excess savings have been spent down. We think the labor market underneath is definitely a little bit weaker than the headline would imply. So we, we do ask ourselves that all the time. The, Reflation, growth, productivity boom—those are kind of the things that would, um, where where you know, kind of a, a duration long and a steepener call uh, would certainly prove to be premature. You know, I finally Jerry got around yesterday to reading to watching The Big Short, so I got to ask a question about mortgage-backed securities, <laughs> agency mortgages. How do you feel about that part of the market? Yeah, I, I would. It's, it's that's a great question. So agency mortgages look attractive nominally, but they look really attractive relative to corporates. You think about where agency mortgages, you know, the, the spread on agency mortgage, I'll just put it this way, the spread on agency mortgages relative to corporates looks like, uh, 
looks like multi-standard deviation uh, dif differential. And so our, our opinion is that we we like you're, you we, we like agency mortgages. Essentially, what you're doing is um, trading duration risk for credit risk. You know, full full faith and credit of of the government. Um, our, our thought is at 155 over on current coupon agency mortgages, and we can adjust for negative convexity and some other things that we don't need to get into. Ultimately, we think they're really attractive. Mm -hmm. um, there are parts of the mortgage market, commercial mortgages, and some other areas that are a little bit more concerning. We think there'll be a lot of opportunity there, um, but uh, but ultimately, we, you know, we're we're being extremely active, but we're we're certainly buying agency mortgages, and we and we like agency mortgages a lot. All right, Jerry, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Jerry Kudzel, Group Managing Director and Generalist Portfolio Manager at TCW. So did you like it? Was it the movie? Oh, yeah, or? good stuff, okay, good okay. stuff. And everybody the, was the in it. The book is better, though, but was, right. yeah. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah. But uh, no, it was good. So um, You're only catching up I, to that now? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We had time to kill yesterday, I had time that's to why. kill yesterday. I was going to the Nick game last night, and my day is over at 12, literally over at 12. So I had to wait around to mm. the Nick game. So I went up. What does one do? You can't make fun of him because you're watching a documentary on the Crimean War. Okay, so <laughs> you a have nothing to say, I'm up John to part uh, three now. Yeah, okay. That's, this is what we do for fun here, guys. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.